Welcome to ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atiyah. Samuel P. Huntington, the eminent and provocative political scientist, is known as a world-class thinker. He's famous for his ideas, which are often prescient, unprecedented, and on occasion, downright impolite. One of Huntington's grander ideas, first expressed in a 1993 article titled The Clash of Civilizations, is that the battles we face are no longer between nations or ideologies, but civilizations. Between the Western and Islamic civilizations, for example, after the attacks of September 11th, this prediction caught the attention of the world, and overnight, Huntington was hailed as a seer. Since then, things have only gotten hotter for Huntington. His most recent book, published in 2004, is called Who Are We? The Challenges to America's National Identity. It's led some people to wonder if he's gone from visionary to reactionary. Here to explain himself is Samuel Huntington, the Albert J. Weatherhead III University professor at Harvard University. We're actually sitting outside under an old apple tree at his summer home on Martha's Vineyard. Sam, welcome to ThoughtCast. Well, delighted to be with you, Jenny. Let's talk about your latest book first. Okay. Why do you think America's national identity is being challenged? Well, I think, first of all, America is not unique in undergoing challenges to its national identity. As I point out in that book, almost every major country uh, has been said to face a challenge to its national identity. And uh, country after country, uh, the, the people in them are asking, well, who are we? Uh, uh, we had certainly tradi uh, certain traditions and culture. Uh, the world is different now. And uh, uh, we have to rethink uh, who we are. And of course, the great force uh, that uh, raises these questions is globalization. Immediately comes to mind France. Yes. and Germany. Sure. What is going on here in America? I think we uh, have uh, had four key elements in our national identity over uh, a time. Uh, these include, first of all, race. Down until um, 50 years ago, uh, Americans thought of themselves as a white people. And blacks and Asians and others were either uh, uh, subordinated, excluded, or, or whatever. Uh, we've uh, abandoned race as a defining component of our national identity and now think of ourselves as multiracial. Uh, linked to the question of race is the question of ethnicity. And um, for, again, 200 years or so, Americans thought of themselves as basically uh, a British-type uh, people, uh, and that only began to change in the tw early 20th century when we got large numbers of immigrants from uh, Central and Southern Europe. And uh, since then, we've always thought of ourselves also as multi-ethnic. Well, what does that leave in terms of components of our national identity? It seems to me it leaves the basic Anglo-Protestant culture of the original settlers uh, which has persisted. Obviously, we have many subcultures, regional and uh, subnational cultures, but there has been a core culture, uh, which I label Anglo-Protestant, uh, and uh, that has uh, been adhered to uh, by most Americans uh, throughout our history, and immigrants, when they come, have come in part because they are attracted by that culture, 
and they quickly assimilate it and get assimilated into it, at least in, a, in uh, two generations or so. So what's going on now? Now we're facing a somewhat different uh, situation uh, because of changes in our society and the impacts of uh, globalization, where um, we increasingly uh, define ourselves as multicultural. And indeed, um, very uh, learned uh, scholars have attacked the idea of our having a single culture. And so uh, uh, we have uh, this uh, uh, new wave of immigration, which differs from the two previous major waves of immigration, in uh, that for the first time in our history, a majority of uh, the immigrants speak a single non-English language. And as we know, just looking around us, Spanish is becoming more and more a language that is used in all sorts of circumstances. And I think certainly if current trends continue, uh, we will end up as a bilingual country. Why do you think the Hispanic culture has not assimilated in your view here? And why are they continuing in your mind to pose a challenge to the well, American be, it, identity? Because of the size and the continuity. Uh, that's a, 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 an important consideration that we have this continuing flow. Now there are no signs that it's going to end. So this makes assimilation uh, more difficult. And the in incentives aren't there uh, for the immigrants to assimilate. Why not? Well, because they can live a perfectly nice life in the, uh, their own community, have jobs, uh, create businesses. Um, uh, many of, the, of course, uh, you have large numbers of entrepreneurs uh, uh, who, uh, uh, and so forth and so on. And so there's no, they don't have to deal with the Anglos, uh, as they call them. They can live very com comfortably just uh, dealing with each other. But Sam, what would happen, do you think, if America truly became bilingual? Uh, that's not a disaster. Uh, several nice, prosperous, democratic countries like uh, Canada and Belgium and Switzerland have uh, more than one uh, language, but it will be a big change uh, for us, and it can pause rather... Uh, serious uh, problems, particularly in terms of generating a reaction against uh, the advantages Spanish speakers will have in our society. Uh, employers, government agencies, others increasingly want people who are bilingual so they can deal with um, Spanish speakers as well as English speakers. And this gives them a significant advantage in uh, uh, jobs and uh, opportunities and, and so forth. And um, uh, people who are only uh, competent in English uh, uh, feel discriminated against. I don't need to tell you that this book has sparked a great deal of controversy and a lot of very negative criticism. If I can sum it up, yeah. <laughs> the implication of much of this criticism is that your concept that the Anglo-Protestant culture yeah. is being challenged by Hispanic culture is somehow reflecting a xenophobia, even racism on your part. Oh, that's ridiculous. Um, I mean, uh, and, you know, when people have to uh, resort to terms like that, it's just a sign they can't make any decent arguments, so they engage in uh, name-calling. Were you surprised by the vehemence of this? 
Well, uh, yes, um, and in part it was uh, the uh, focus upon the Hispanic dimension and um, the uh, Hispanic presence in the United in the United States gets treated in one chapter out of twelve. The book is about American national identity, not about just about his Hispanics. But that chapter uh, was published uh, two and a half months before the book came out in the journal Foreign Policy, and everybody focused on it. And you know, people continually refer to it as, as uh, Huntington's book on Hispanics. Well, it's not a book on Hispanics. It's a book on American national identity and covers many other, I think, very important topics. Uh, just to mention one, which has received relatively uh, little attention, um, is uh, the argument I make, uh, I think, with quite persuasive evidence as to the denationalization of American elites. And your point is that these transnational elites don't feel quite the same allegiance to the United That's States. Right. That's right. And they're very clear on it. And I think I quote several who say uh, in one way or another, um, I don't view myself as an American citizen. I view myself as a global citizen who happens to have an American passport. Is it possible that some aspects of your book have gotten less attention because people are focused on the Hispanic sure. chapters, which incite a response. Do you think, looking back at it, that you would have been better off to have phrased certain things differently? Well, sure. Uh, I mean, one always, anything one writes, you go back and read it after a while, and you, you know, you run across passages saying, why did I say that? <laughs> um, that's inevitable, it seems to me. But, um, you know, uh, I, but I certainly wouldn't change the basic message, the argument, the evidence uh, that I present, which I think is uh, pretty compelling. You write, for example, that in, in order to attain the American dream, Hispanics need to dream it in English. Yeah. Which really means it's helpful to them to learn English. Yeah. But somehow the way it's phrased seems somewhat of a put-down. Well, I don't know why, but, uh, you know, I'm essentially saying here, if they are, are going to be uh, become uh, full-fledged members of American society, they have to op uh, operate in English. And, uh, and, you know, I say it rather dramatically because somebody was talking about nightmares. I say, well, uh, maybe nightmares, but the important thing is that they uh, dream in English. <laughs> a key point in your book is that the United States, as you said earlier, yeah. is no longer necessarily white or Saxon, yeah. but that it remains Anglo and Protestant. And you mentioned that American Jews, you know, have said that they really feel Anglo-Protestant and yeah. that Black Americans are really Anglo-Protestant, but the Hispanics. In their culture, yeah. But Hispanics are not. You, you know, you're making a sweeping generalization. All I'm saying is that so far, uh, the process of assimilation hasn't uh, proceeded uh, for the whole variety of reasons, uh, uh, with the same dispatch and um, comprehensiveness as occurred in these previous waves. And as I point out, you know, in part, that's American society. Large numbers of Americans say they shouldn't assimilate. They should preserve their own culture. That's never happened before. I'd like to just bring up the fact that your family came to America from England in 1633. Your family settled in Norwich, Connecticut, and in part founded it. And 
There was a Samuel Huntington way back there who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, the first president of the Continental Congress. The point being, you're not George Washington, but you're pretty darn close. Well, come on. <laughs> Are you in any way, do you think, being attacked for this book, in part, not just because of what it says, but because of who you are, the white Anglo-Protestant male, the only man standing we are allowed to attack in these politically correct well, days. Well, I, I think there's something to that, sure, um, because uh, obviously uh, um, the sorts of racist and ethnic attacks uh, which used to pervade American society uh, against ethnic uh, minorities uh, uh, happily uh, uh, no longer uh, are accepted in our society and I think that's a, a tremendously important uh, improvement um, but, but that does leave as you say uh, white Anglo-Saxon males preferably dead to be attacked. Nobody likes change Sam especially if you're on top, and you're surrounded by a group sure. of newcomers who, by their sheer numbers, are going to overtake you. I yeah. think the problem here, in part, is that your identity as a descendant of the Founding Fathers makes your argument seem self-serving. It, it has the appearance of a conflict of interest. Well, I don't know exactly what the conflict of um, uh, uh, interest is. Uh, you are speaking for a culture an Anglo-Protestant culture that, in your view, originated with the founders, yeah, right. and you would like to see that maintained if America right. is to be okay. America. Yeah. That is your culture. That is important to you. Yeah, but it's, that's the culture that has been important to tens of millions of Americans, including tens of millions of immigrants, uh, throughout our history. Now, it, as I say, I think it was a product of uh, uh, the British Protestant settlers who came in the 17th and 18th century and who were, among other things, deeply religious. Uh, uh, and uh, they uh, established this culture and there's a, a fairly extensive sociological literature on uh, uh, the significance of founding cultures and how they persist in various societies. Uh, and that is what we have had here up until the present. and. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, I'm not saying it's good or bad or whatever, right? but uh, that, it seems to me, has been the fact. One of your critics is Alan Wolfe, a public intellectual a professor yeah. at Boston College, religion professor. In a review, he calls you Patrick Buchanan with footnotes. My question to you is, why are you getting this criticism? Because he can't think of anything else to say, and so it's name-calling. Uh, and, uh, you know, if he wants to make an intelligent argument, uh, I've read a, um, uh, many uh, uh, writings by Alan Wolf, and uh, many of them are very sensible, intelligent, uh, thoughtful. I may or may not agree with them, but uh, I, I can't complain about what, what he's try, trying to argue. I think uh, going out and using phrases like uh, Patrick Buchanan with footnote, um, uh, uh, that just goes beyond the pale. Uh, it's not uh, 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 scholarly. It's uh, uh, just name calling. Um, so you and, don't you don't care for Patrick Buchanan? Well, uh, Patrick Buchanan uh, has a, a, a negative image in most scholarly and intellectual journalistic circles. And so when he says it's Patrick is Buchanan with footnotes, he's saying Huntington is. Uh, 
uh, providing stuff to support uh, this nefarious character Buchanan. That's what he's saying. Are you concerned that this will cloud your legacy, this well, critical response to your book? No, I don't think about that. You're listening to Samuel Huntington, the Harvard professor and author of Who Are We? The Challenges to America's National Identity. And this is ThoughtCast, also podcast on the web at www.thoughtcast.org. I'm Jenny Atia. Stay with us. Sam, let's switch gears. You've recently made the decision to step down from the editorial board of the National Interest, a right of center quarterly, and political economist Francis Fukuyama and Zbigniew Brzezinski, President Carter's national security advisor, quit as well. Now you're all founding a new magazine called The American Interest, where you're on the editorial board. Why this switch? I'm not quite sure why the switch occurred, except clearly there was a certain unhappiness with the uh, nature of uh, the uh, national interest. The extent to which I think uh, many uh, people like uh, Frank and um, Zabig uh, felt that it was being, uh, had been taken over by the neocons. It was becoming a, a vehicle for that line of thought. And they wanted to, felt that there ought to be a, a broader gauge, a, a journal of, um, what can one say, uh, uh, moderate conservative uh, inclinations, uh, rather than one that was a propaganda vehicle for uh, neocon ideas. You are, in fact, not a neoconservative at all. You're an right. old-fashioned Democrat, you call That's yourself. Right. Yeah. You are opposed to the war in Iraq, were from the beginning, and you're not too fond of the imperialist aims of remaking the world in our image. Right. Uh, let's go back, actually, to The Clash of Civilizations, your book, okay. which in some ways looks forward to the future and the issues that we yeah. will be encountering. In 1993, you wrote an article, which later you turned into a book, in which you argued that in the post-Cold War era, civilizations, not nations or ideologies, are the basic building blocks of future cooperation and conflict. How is your thesis holding up? Well, I think, unfortunately, it's um, uh, been ha holding up very well. And um, I often hear people say that they oppose the clash of civilizations. Now, I don't know what they mean when uh, they say that. If they mean uh, they don't want to see broader clash of, uh, between states and groups from different uh, civilizations and escalation of, uh, of the local inter-civilizational conflicts that are going on in the world. Uh, I, I'm opposed to that too. Um, if when they say they are opposed to the clash of civilizations, uh, they don't think there is a possibility of a um, broader clash developing. Uh, that's a matter of judgment, and as I looked at the evidence, uh, uh, it seemed to me that the trends were in that direction. As we have seen, uh, there are groups in the world, uh, including both uh, Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda on the one hand, and uh, also um, many Americans um, on the other who seem to like the idea of a clash of civilizations. What are the Americans saying they like about the idea? Well, uh, the, they may not be all that explicit, uh, but when uh, we invade 
uh, two Muslim countries in the matter of a few months. It certainly looks like a clash of civilizations to every Muslim. And I think it plausibly is a clash of civilizations. Uh, we're out to, um, uh, we, we conceive of the militant Islam as our enemy and we're going to go out and uh, do what has to be done uh, to con contain them. And, and some, obviously some things have to be done to protect ourselves. Uh, I don't think we have to go around invading other countries, however. In your book, you mentioned that there are nine civilizations, yeah. one of which is Islamic. Do you see that the Islamic civilization and the Western one is uh, in conflict? Well, groups certainly are. And if you look at the record of Islam, Islamic groups have, in the past couple of decades, have been involved in, oh, 15 or so um, local conflicts with uh, non-Islamic groups. And these are small-scale uh, clashes of uh, uh, civilizations. And I think it is interesting to ask, uh, why is this the case? Why is uh, this social and political violence more characteristic of Islam than of other uh, civilizations? I don't think it has anything significant to do with the inherent uh, theology or doctrines of uh, Islam. I suspect that if you went through history, uh, Christians have been far more violent overall than Muslims, probably. But at the present time, you have this tremendous population explosion uh, in the uh, Muslim world. You have this uh, new uh, sense of uh, Muslim consciousness so that uh, Muslims are increasingly thinking of themselves in terms of their religion uh, rather than in terms of uh, other identities. And you have the situation where uh, in many, many instances, uh, Muslims are being uh, governed uh, by governments uh, dominated by non-Muslim groups, and essentially they are fighting for a national independence. You look at Chechnya, for instance, and the Russians have been... A uh, oppressing the Chechens uh, uh, since the middle of the 19th century. And uh, the Chechens have periodically uh, fought for their uh, independence. And uh, it seems to me it's, uh, they ought to get it. What do you think is the underlying cause of the Islamic terrorist attacks that we've been witnessing since before 9-11, actually? Yeah, well, of course, um, the first attacks uh, on the World Trade Center you look at um, uh, uh, people who are undertaking uh, these attacks, who are they? Uh, they're reasonably well-educated, young, male, and in some cases uh, they are the products of Muslim societies, whether it be Pakistan or Saudi Arabia uh, or other Muslim societies. And, and of course, the, um, almost all the uh, people involved in the 9-11 were uh, from uh, Saudi Arabia, and uh, they are alienated from their governments who are oppressing them. Uh, and so uh, they uh, quite legitimately, it seems to me, uh, point to the extent to which uh, many of these governments are supported by the United States and Israel and other Western uh, powers. And uh, so the, we become their enemy. And then in addition uh, to those uh, uh, 
sources in Muslim societies. There also is the uh, experiences uh, Muslims uh, experience in Western societies, uh, particularly in uh, Europe, uh, where uh, typically the people who have been involved in militant and violent uh, activities are second generation uh, uh, people, and they grow up uh, torn between two cultures. The European countries, by and large, have not been countries of immigration, and uh, the Europeans don't know quite what to make of uh, this foreign group that has uh, come into their society and societies in substantial numbers. And uh, they uh, have a life apart, and uh, this creates, obviously, uh, can create very tense and at times uh, violent relations between uh, the Muslims uh, and uh, the non-Muslims. And so uh, these people feel alienated and uh, hence go out to try to assert themselves uh, against what they see as the oppressive forces uh, 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 in the societies in which they've grown up. And uh, so that, uh, that, you know, it's very, it seems to me that's a very natural uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, reaction uh, for uh, these people who are off by the, uh, uh, never been integrated into the European societies, uh, are often unemployed. Uh, it's a very natural um, uh, reaction for them to have. Tell me about the Bush White House and where you think they've gone wrong with the Islamic civilization and our clash with it, the war on terror and Iraq. Well, um, I uh, certainly don't think that invading Iraq has contributed anything to uh, promoting greater security for the United States. Diverted uh, resources into a war, now an occupation, which was unnecessary. Saddam Hussein was never posing any uh, threat to the United States. And uh, before we went, uh, went into Iraq, I said, if, if we invade Iraq, we'll end up fighting two wars. One is against Saddam Hussein and his military establishment, and that war we will win uh, very quickly. The second war will be a war against uh, the Iraqi people, and that is a war we will never win, and that's where we are now. Your friend and former student, Francis Fukuyama, I think thinks differently on this issue. I spoke to him briefly. Well, maybe, yeah. <laughs> Regarding Iraq, he feels it's a terrible situation right now, but that there was a reason to be concerned about Iraq and its weapons of mass destruction. Non-existent weapons of mass destruction, come on. Uh. But at the time, he feels it was a legitimate fear, a legitimate concern. Well, it wasn't legitimate if we uh, believe they had uh, weapons of mass destruction and they didn't. It was lousy intelligence, uh, appalling intelligence. Uh, and I think both the intelligence agencies and well, the evidence is mixed. Uh, the administration, which uh, uh, cer certainly in some ways was trying to uh, encourage the intelligence agencies to come up with the answers that they wanted, uh, they, they created this um, threat, which didn't exist. Looking to the future, the next 20, 30 years, Sam, what do you see with this war on terror, with this potential clash of civilizations? Well, let me just say, I think the war on terror is a horrible 
useless phrase, misleading. If by terror we mean um, uh, attacks on uh, civilians and civilian targets for political or symbolic uh, reasons, uh, terror is a tactic. It is historically and is now the tactic of the weak. If you can't do anything else, uh, you'll throw a bomb into a convoy or something. And uh, hence, I think it is uh, unfortunate to talk about a war on terror. We are fighting a war against Muslim extremists, and we ought to say that. And that's a relatively small number of Muslims. Thanks to many of the things we've done, uh, that small number of active violent Muslims has a very considerable sympathy among uh, Muslim communities around the world. But it still is a relatively small uh, number of people, and we have to uh, try to defend ourselves as best we can against uh, future attacks. And of course, uh, uh, the um, major uh, danger, which I think all of us recognizes, is uh, the possibility that uh, one of these um, uh, uh, groups uh, could get hold of nuclear weapons through one way or another. And so we would have 9-11 with nuclear weapons, and that's a very real possibility. So is that what you see 20, 30 years from now? Well, I don't see it, but I think that's a real possibility, and we have to do what we can uh, to try to prevent it from uh, uh, materializing. Uh, Samuel Huntington, thank you for being a guest on podcast. Well, thank you for having me. You've been listening to the political scientist, Harvard professor, and prolific author, Samuel Huntington. And this is ThoughtCast. Susan Wenemere is the associate producer of the program, and I'm Jenny Atia. Thanks for joining us.